And in the ancient right. world, those families with many sons, with many children, that so as that Tahotep mm-hmm. in, Maxim, injunction yeah. tells you, the man whose children are many. yes, you're, that gives you power. It gives you social power. Your, your family is larger than another family. Your farm labor is greater than another family. Your ability to marry into other families is greater and your family will grow. This is, um, this is how people create wealth sure. in the ancient world. Sure. Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. All right, I'm kind of reversing a bit. Yeah, yeah. Talking a bit about marriage, Yeah. right? So one of the critiques by boomers nowadays on millennials yeah. is that we're, you know, cohabitating without getting married. Living in sin. Living in sin. Yes. Um, Not even bothering to think about babies. Like marriage isn't as big of a deal All that us. birth control. We're not, yeah, having yeah. kids. We're choosing not to have kids yeah. at all. Um, but in comparison to ancient Egypt, one of the maxims of Ptahotep yeah. is uh happy is the man whose children are many and so mm-hmm. there's this idea you know you're supposed to you know make a house for yourself you're supposed to have a lot of babies right and then those kids are supposed to care for you when you're old right um and so mangles was to procreate and all this stuff what do we know about egyptian marriage do yeah. you have to get married before you have kids do we have any idea of things going on it's a tricky one. We have more evidence. Why of, don't we have a lot of evidence? I know it's bizarre. Um, or is it? It's maybe not as bizarre as we think. We yeah. have we have evidence for founding a household. Yeah. So it's founding an economic household. agreement, not a religious Living agreement, together. not a moral agreement. There doesn't seem to be this virginal, the prizing of the virginal. Like you um, having to save your virginity till no, there, there's yeah. none of this evidence. And that if you get pregnant with the farmer boy next door. You found a household with him. Seem, seems if to be. If you wanted to, it, I maybe. guess. If you, there is no evidence in ancient Egypt of bastard children. The word I yeah. don't think That's until the point. Greeks come in is the, and then it's a big them. deal. When the Greeks come in, they bring all that shit with them, and then the idea of the bastard is mm-hmm. a big deal. Like Ptolemy the yeah. the twelfth, um, Cleopatra's father, is a bastard, and it's a big deal, <laughs> scandalous. Um, but for Egypt, you don't have any of that. And it's like, just probably, a, well, cause we also have all these instances of having like, you know, second wives, like mm-hmm. after the first wife dies, probably yeah. in childbirth. Yeah. He would, you know, all the family would be a big mixed blended family, but yeah. they wouldn't make a distinction. No, they were just all the sons and all the daughters and yeah. it wasn't a big deal made. There is evidence for divorce yeah. that a mm-hmm. woman can decide to separate and pull her, her assets out of the marriage yeah. and leave. So in some ways you have to reconstruct what marriage is by what it, by how you end it. Well, it was interesting to me. I, I was thinking about divorce and I wanted to know if we had any evidence for who got the kids. Right. And there seems to be from some wills and inheritance documents that the father yeah. kept the children. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. 
Um, well, they're the, they're his commodities. Yeah. And that's the way patriarchal societies yes. work. And it's one of the chief ways of controlling the women still today. And Not why leave. women stay no. in a relationship and don't leave because they know that they will lose. And yes. now that we're in 50-50 states where father get, gets equal access to the mother, and I had to go through that whole thing myself, that no matter how young the kid is, that you may lose half of the access to your kid. And so women stay, or men, stay in a relationship for, for longer than they would necessarily like. Yeah. Um, I think for most patriarchal societies, I don't know of any evidence for this in Egypt, but you would say that the, the child, while it's being breastfed or is very young of tender years, mm -hmm. if you like, stays with the mom. And then after that, that kid can be owned by the father. Mm -hmm. but, but again, there's no evidence for this in Egypt. And the divorce documents we have for pharaonic Egypt, just all there's no the evidence of the kids. Like yeah, divided. there's no discussion yeah, of the children. It's very much like, oh, you get to bring whatever the wife brought in, she gets to take back. Right. And then, you know, the kids are owed like 30% of like whatever the father's property. It's all very like transactional property goods and stuff. It's not. But it's about the woman taking her stuff out. It's not about the kids taking yeah. their stuff out of the relationship. Yeah, so owed. if they're coexisting in the same village, which one must assume that they were. She probably just went back to her parents' house. She went to a different house. He stayed in his house and the kids. I mean, there could be some. The kids. There could be some back and forth sort of situations or dad sees the kids if they're at mom's. We actually don't know. Yeah, we really don't know. But the fact that divorce was allowed and that a woman could initiate it is a big deal. And a lot of people look at this and say, oh, the Egyptians were more enlightened and females had more rights. And while that could be the case, it's more about the economy and lack of land ownership yeah. and asset ownership than anything else. Yeah. You control the woman more if you own more property. And since so much of society didn't own property, they didn't need to control the woman and keep her in a marriage. You never see the king get divorced. No, but you don't need to. He's got a harem. I know. But so like, there's you never no... see him being like, I hate my great royal wife and getting rid of her and uh, like you nominating him... some young random harem girl is going to be my new great royal but wife. But you do see new great royal wives. Coming in, yeah. You do. And you see the older one kind of either move to the side or somehow less important than like she was before. she's old. <laughs> We do, of course. <laughs> Not because like they had a falling out relationship wise. But the women didn't have the value in ancient Egypt court life that they would if they were Catherine married to Henry VIII. Yeah. Where everything depends on the relationship between this one man and this Two one woman people. or between uh, Cleopatra II and Ptolemy the Sixth. You know, there it's like, like super important, both right? Both mattered, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um then if the woman leaves, you're going to note it in a historical document. It's going to be important. In Pharaonic Egypt, it doesn't matter. Yeah. There were, there were so many of these women to commodify. Mm -hmm. So what, again, just words do we have for husband and wife? Yeah, Sen and Senet, brother and sister. Oh, yeah, Hemet, sorry. Yeah, yeah with the, with the uterus word. What is that sign? Yeah. What it is it? Like, it looks like a vulva. Maybe, but it's yeah. got the jagged top. It's like a little pot. But I think it, everyone says it's a pot, but it looks like a vulva. Um, yeah, Hemet. Hemet, wife, but but your point being that they also call each other brother and sister. And husband is what? Like there's a, a close, cha word? Hi. Just a typical one. Yeah. But yeah, there's... But so the one reading I was looking into, you don't see husband used a lot it's always because because in tombs it's always his wife mm -hmm. you're never seeing for her husband no. as much no. so well, hemet pops up a lot more 
because we're talking about relation to the male. Right. So we're seeing a lot more his hemet. And, and for whatever reason, female tombs, when it's just the female, they don't mention their husbands at all. He would have to take precedence. They don't picture They're him at like, all. He's not, he's not mm-hmm. And there's lots of literature about this. Good yeah. Anne Macy Roth article, mm-hmm. um, McCarthy. But then you'd have to follow as the an rules article. of decorum and make him bigger. And... Yeah, so the tomb of right? Nefertari, so for instance, no Ramses II. Yeah, he was there. He'd have all. to be big and important mm-hmm. and she'd have to take second stage. But... Whereas her temple at Abu Simbel, it's all about him. Yeah. So, and her together, but he gets out. precedence. Yeah. Yeah. So do we have any evidence for who you could marry? Was it so in more modern European cultures, right? You didn't want to marry down. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to marry maybe a foreigner was very taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, do we see that? I think definitely no qualms about marrying foreigners. We have a lot of instances of yes, yeah, so Anuay marries a foreigner popping in. Doom Prince he marries a foreign chick, and just like foreign quote unquote foreign names popping in, and yeah, being okay. And yeah, see any issues? No, and you could have more than one wife. So if you have one yeah, foreign that was my wife, next question. Um, but that's its own question. That's a hard one. Yeah, that's okay. hard. Go there next. Um, but like marrying up or down, that's it's super interesting that you don't see a lot of that like where would you look you'd look in the instruction text right okay so my next point is that some some people have done like genealogical tracings of who people are marrying and how they're related and they're mostly first cousins yeah yeah so you're probably (laughs) not marrying that far outside of your own status because you're marrying your cousin and And if you're a landowner you're keeping it in the family Yeah. yeah So and if you like, live in a village, everyone's you're all not marrying someone from like the Delta. Anyway. If you're in the Luxor, and I think unless you're a super elite and you're trying to make these like new alliances with yeah. someone, but if you're just you know a typical sharecropper or something like this, you're marrying your cousin. It's amazing. So which and happened here until very recently. In happened Egypt, everywhere until in very Egypt, recently. first cousin marriage is still. Yeah. Very much a thing. And they, I was looking at one article where was saying, you know, it's super common and that, you know, they wouldn't have connected any genetic problems. But it was to the benefit of the family yeah. to keep assets within the family and not to send you things out to, to a different family. Alliances, yes. right? You just needed yeah. to have new babies. And, yeah. Yeah. But keep it all local. That's so interesting that they actually proved it mm-hmm. genetically they that they were marrying. The Which article is this? Do you remember? I'll find it. It's in um in the box folder. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. But they looked into all the how, names. How did they? they were oh, able... they were looking at names and not doing a genetic yeah, study. Yeah, it was by name. So obviously, maybe it's some issues because people have similar names and stuff. But yeah. they did like one town and they tried to connect. The this list. is later. It's going to be a Greek Egypt sort no, of. It was, it was. I think it was maybe twenty first late period. They were looking ah, at Stila and okay. kind of tracking things back. And, okay. So it's a third intermediate mm-hmm. period study. That's super interesting because that that's fun. where you have the long genealogies yeah. to be able to track. And I feel it. like you could maybe even do this in Thebes with all, all the nobles' tombs and see. Yeah, you have a lot of names listed and go through and see who's related and who's. I mean, the problem with doing it with third intermediate period data is that you are potentially bringing in new cultural ways yes, from the true. Bronze Age collapse from whoever the sea peoples are, whoever the Libyans are, that you have new tribal ways of doing things and maybe more kinship based, larger collective families than you had before, potentially. potentially. And so you're bringing that in because those genealogies did not exist in that way with such 
regularity yeah. before the you third intermediate period. You did have claims. them. Yeah. You did have them. Again, as we said, you're, you know, who your mom and dad are, but yeah. you might not, if everyone else is just your son, then it's harder to make clearer connections. Yeah. And establish those family trees. Yeah. But pretty interesting. And I think established cross-culturally that everyone was usually marrying a cousin yeah. I, Kylie has a funny story where she when she was um all pairing in um in where was she Norway Norway um but they were trying to like marry her her to like her second cousin oh my god and she was like oh no I say I have like a boyfriend but like also <laughs> ew like I'm not marrying like you know second cousin technically is legal I'm but, okay like, with uh, second cousin I could deal with second cousin second cousin's fine I guess but just like but yeah no, like let's uh mix up the genetics <laughs> a little bit so but I was just like but yeah but in small rural yeah. very isolated where she was it's like that's your option right no one else is there you're probably all related somehow in rural areas in America probably still I'm, I mean my mom's family is from West Virginia there has to be some first cousin second cousin mm-hmm. marriages and my mom like when she was younger she counted all her she had like 500 cousins first cousins because they're just such not really yeah no it's not which her not grandma, 500 yeah she had like 500 that's impossible because like her mom was one of like 14 and then each one of those siblings had oh like oh my god yeah and that's so your she, community and but then they were all named like jim bob and john oh something now two first names and <laughs> lived in the holla and coal mine and probably are dead black lung and but I always I always laugh like anyone from West Virginia I'm like we're probably related somehow or some some sort wow but that's awesome yeah so but yeah my grandma was like one of 13 like multiple sets of twins Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but crazy and I think it's very much well we know this in the United States it's very much that way amongst orthodox communities Mm -hmm. of um yeah or ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities Mormon, or Amish communities, sometimes Catholics, Mormon communities. one of seven. But Catholic communities, I mean, you know, my dad's Irish-American, my mother's Italian-American. That was a great heterozygosity to move forward with. Not so much homozygosity and the religion helped to bind people of very different yes, genetic true. strains together. Super useful. That was, that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. But that's its own weirdness yeah. and, and its own American weirdness. Mm-hmm immigrant weirdness yeah like but. my dad being one of seven like he was 18 when his youngest brother was born that's crazy and i'm like you could have had that baby just strange one of four about. one of four four is even a lot four I is a lot of yeah. kids it's a lot yeah. of children but yeah if you're you know you you live on a farm and you need 12 farm hands yeah it works to have a bunch yeah you know those kids are, are great assets mm-hmm. and you want to have as many of them as possible Whereas today, as you know, trying expensive. to have a kid today and being able to afford it and bring it up in a way so that it's not great debilitation to you, having children is for the very poor or the very rich these days. Well, and I, you know, back like, to your point back then, like probably my great grandma didn't have a, like there wasn't birth control. No. You just, you got pregnant 12 plus times that yeah. was just like what happened right yeah. you couldn't or unless you were abstaining or something like this which they didn't do and in the ancient right? world those families with many sons with many children that so as that 
Tahotep mm-hmm. in, in yeah. junction tells you the man whose children are married. yes you're that gives you power it gives you social power your your family is larger than another family your farm labor is greater than another family your ability to marry into other families is greater and your family will grow this is um this is how people create wealth so, in the ancient world so. Yeah, your children are your wealth in the ancient world. We think of it as a drain. <laughs> and it is a drain. It's a drain of energy. It's a drain of independence. It's a drain of money. But in the ancient world, these things were what buoyed you. They were what would take care of you when you were old. They were what would would maintain well, you your family have lineage. A choice like you do now? No. No. Right? Like I can choose not to. Yeah. Um I'm sure like there was thought as much there wouldn't have been the thought because there wasn't as much incentive i am sure there was we know that there was herbal birth control that there were things that one could do exactly so people could do something about it but there was less incentive because that large family was so much of an asset Mm -hmm. to to all of you and to the mother Mm -hmm. the mother found her power through those children that's true Mm -hmm. yeah being the nubbit pair Mm -hmm. Not having children. Oh my God. That's why the Egyptian woman took you you aside. It was so And she's like, you poor thing. You're not doing it right. You need to go to the temple and do this ritual to get pregnant. You're Mm -hmm. let me help you out. Right. She's trying to help you. Or um, Professor Vendrick's story of being in Egypt and people like hopping over the one um, like ancient temple had like a fallen stone. The women would still from the village go and do stuff. And that when she was trying to get pregnant, like they brought her there and they're like, Oh, you have to do this and like trying to help. Amr has stories of this too. Mm -hmm. You go to Dendra Temple and you would sleep overnight and women still do these things. It's wonderful. Because, you know. So could men have more than one wife? From an out non royal. Obviously, we know kings and stuff all could have lots as many wives as he wanted. Such a tricky question. Do you have do you have any literature that tells us the other that one side or the other that one Egyptologist say one and one Egyptologist says another? They all hedge their bets, don't they, when they write yeah. about it? Well, and I think because the Egyptian evidence is ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? Because even the Hekinoch stuff. Yeah. The person I have it here that it was his second wife. But those documents go over a long span of time. Those and that the word you're translating as second wife can also mean like concubine yeah. or something else. Yeah. And like some people argue that it's his second wife, not because his first wife is dead, but that it's his second wife while the first wife is still actually alive. Right. And he talks to it and the kids are being mean to her and he's yelling at them to stop being mean to right. her, all this kind of stuff. So it then seems like you could have a second wife. And even from like the, and wow, is the word concubine loaded, um, but let's yeah. let it sit there and be loaded because it's, yeah. it, I think if you feel any offense at the word concubine, that that's appropriate. And that, and yet it explains very clearly what that word might actually have entailed for the woman who served in that position. So I would let it be radically reclaimed in this Which moment. Brings <laughs> up, like from, okay, we do this with the students, like the law code of Hammurabi. Right. It says like, oh, if your wife can't have kids, you're able to marry someone else mm-hmm. to have kids, but you still have to take care of the first wife still. Right. It's not her fault, et cetera, et cetera, which is nice. Um, <laughs> but you're allowed to, you know, find someone else to have kids with. Uh-huh. So like, is that what's going on in Egypt? That they're saying, oh, you know, your first wife, of course, they're blaming the woman being barren or something like this. But but also in Egypt from Daryl Medina text, we know that the man was the one who got blamed for yes. a lack of impregnation, that she was said to be dry, which means that he's the one not putting out. Yeah. So, so then it seems that's a wonderful thing in Egypt that the not, for mythological reasons, the, the onus is put on the man rather than the woman. And then yeah. also if 
Of course, people would have known if that woman can't get pregnant, though, and he has the second one and she does, then they would have gone, huh, maybe the mythology is not always correct. People are not stupid. They're they're clever. But then also if we're not hard, there aren't hard rules about adultery and no janitor because you're not passing on land like maybe you could have a side piece and it wasn't a, a big deal <laughs> i think you, you know? could and i think if you're wealthy enough you could certainly do these things and, and hekinoct is word she would be called or he would be called eh, hekinoct is what it is yeah. because it's a socioeconomic accounting mm-hmm. in which she must be listed yep. so that you can see what and he's making sure what, right of her. and what she's taking from the household or giving to the household. Whereas in a tomb, a formal structure, kind of like a gravestone where you yep. say John Smith and Mary Smith, and they're there together on the same they're tombstone, babies. John Smith's side piece, as yep. you put it, would not be on the gravestone yep. because that would be scandalous, but that yep. doesn't mean he did not have a side piece mm-hmm. and she, she's there. And maybe, he has private documentation that he burned in his fireplace that talks about the money that he put aside for said side piece and that kind of thing happened all the time but we can't expect it to come into the needed to be burned but it was totally yeah maybe kosher maybe but it can't be in the formal record yes your your direct line of descent again is the is the mom and dad kids your mom and dad yeah that's it that's the and what happened to these kids of the side piece the egyptians don't tell us anything they don't maybe they're the adopted kids it's possible probably be cared for it's possible again the word bastard is not there it's not there no things must have been more complicated as human beings are not monogamous they're not we are not gibbons we don't we're not parrots (laughs) you know we don't we don't pair up with one we are we are very, um, we choose to do that. And we, it's, you know, it's, economy forces us into yeah. that. But when an economy patriarchally forces people into such monogamous relationships, they often sexually find their way out. There's another boomer critique. Yes. A lot of millennials are in polyamorous. Yes you know different types of relationships boomers invented the key party don't understand yeah but to them it was like a party you know you go here and you do this thing not like as a long-lasting relationship boomers are all about hanging out with friends and having polyamory they just didn't name it as such the problem is that people are being open about what it is so interesting yeah you have to just not talk about it and then it's all okay yeah yeah but to them it was something a secretive not um to be openly discussed yeah 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 Okay. So now getting back to kids. So we talked about how they're all going to die really early. Um, <laughs> they're all going to die. We're really all going to die, but the kids especially. The kids especially. Yeah. Because they didn't have vaccines. Yeah. So it was a question of when you got malaria, not if you yep. got malaria. It was a question of what parasites you got, not if you got parasites. Uh, I've listened to this podcast called This Podcast May Kill You <laughs> or something like this. And it's all about That's each funny. episode is a different infectious disease. Oh, you know, God. Small po- it's I, great. I just finished. I'm really sad. It's a wonderful podcast. It's two grad students. That's awesome. In infectious season. Like each episode is, you know, they do smallpox, they do yeah. flu, they do, uh, you know, the tsetse fly, yeah. they do... Um, leprosy like literally everything i was watching outlander on your recommendation and wow they show a lot of medical shit in there and i'm like ah i can't watch the pus-filled wound being drained i can read Uh, about it but i don't want to watch it yeah well i like all that stuff yeah well like pimple popping and all gooey oh god well the egyptians would have had that in spades yeah. And they would have had little worms in their tear ducts of their eyes. Like, oh, would you go back to ancient Egypt? I'm like, no, mm-hmm. like they didn't have 
Like I would have died. Yeah, I would have died. Already. I'd be dead already. Too. I would have died in childbirth. Me and my mom, I got stuck. We would have both died. Yeah. So no, I don't want to go back to Egypt. No. I'm happy here. No time machine for us. Hashtag Maybe vaccines. We, we go quickly and we look and then we come back. Yeah, I want to just like, yeah, if I could go <laughs> in my bubble. Yeah. Or like get like all the vaccines before I went or something, maybe. Yeah. Um, Force field time. But yes. Yeah, so in my podcast, they they do like half of it on like the epidemiology of the virus and all the stuff and how yeah. it works and how it affects you and symptoms. But the other half is on the history of it. That's so interesting. Part of like what I really like. And they made a joke because every illness always led back to the earliest evidence being from Egypt and the really? papyrus and all this stuff. And really? so it became a joke and they were like, is it in the Evers? <laughs> and I was like, ha, like, yeah. That's amazing. So and funny. so they're, they're linking which diseases in particular? A lot of them. And yeah. Similar symptoms. And there's Obviously great disagreement about this. You can't, you can't this. say, oh, yeah. this is for sure. Yeah typhoid or this is for sure whatever. it's an intestinal because yes because it's know. okay the symptoms match it seems leishmaniasis or something like this right? right you have like symptoms match some you can see on bodies on right. bodies right you can test like king tut had malaria and all this stuff but too. these smallpox pustules aren't necessarily That's, smallpox yes, or are they don't know and then the tuberculosis is also mm-hmm. debatable but yeah, people throw that word around, around a lot yeah when plague shows up and i used the word cholera once in a book and i was slammed down by the bioarchaeologist they're like we don't know if it was cholera so i put i put communicable intestinal <laughs> i mean they that can wipe that. out an entire village so that was they always to work say better. like you know this might not be it but right. there's something an illness that resembles this dating back right and they do you know they've done the genetics on all these diseases so they can see that they're from millions of years ago yeah. so they were around yeah it's just whether or not what the Egyptians were talking about was that specific disease or not. But yeah, many of these things would have been killing. But I remember talking to Richard Fazzini, who had been going to Egypt since before antibiotics in the 60s. And he would tell me how he'd hang out with his village workers and everyone when they peed, as guys go off to pee, their pee was all pink because everyone had had parasites in their bladders. They all had worms in their bladders and everyone had pink pee. And that was just the norm. It wasn't the exception. It was the norm. And he's he's peeing with them going, oh, wow, my pee is yellow. And there was like a whole ha-ha joke. <laughs> they're like, your pee is weird. He's like, no, 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 your pee is weird. <laughs> but this, you know, this is just the way people live. And then dying so, at 45 is the norm. You know, when you have that kind life. of, yeah. yeah, it is a hard life. It's a hard yeah. life. No wonder you drink your beer and wine until you die oh, yeah. and avoid the water. Gluttony. Fuck it yeah seriously um but it's even like when we go to egypt or anywhere else we can't drink the water but everyone there can because yeah. they have the intestinal and the gut yeah. microbiome to to deal with that stuff it's true we're like little baby yeah we're the kids who didn't grow up on the farm and yeah, are allergic to everything yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly we're eating up dirt um <laughs> i was it's yeah. I'm eating lots of that sauerkraut from the health uh-huh. food store to try to improve my microbiome. So I don't we have to eat dirt. In the, <laughs> the other podcast I was at yesterday about like probiotics, prebiotics, right. postbiotics right. and all this stuff. And, and I did read an article last night actually about Mongolian people, how they, you know, mainly subsist on dairy products, yeah. but they aren't, they're lactose intolerant. Shut up. If you genetically test them, they don't have the gene. And so they the just have it in their microbiome. Yes. So they get it from the world around them. 
That's amazing. And they have all these gut bacteria that break down the lactose for them because they don't have the genes. So if you have a C-section in Mongolia, that kid is going to have a really hard time getting the microbiome seeded into their intestine. Well, the first microbiome you get is vaginal birth where you get it from the mother's birth canal. From like breast milk and stuff, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Soon after, but extraordinary. the, the scientist was, you know, the microbiome's on like the wall of the yurt. And because the milk gets slashed and, you know, it's all fabrics that absorb the bacteria and they're getting it. They're not washing, you know, they're not sanitizing things. You don't need to wash wool. Just wool rinse, doesn't need to be washed. But they just rinse the bowls out. You know, they don't mm-hmm. sanitize the bowl with soap mm-hmm. and water. And right, all right, right. They're just using the bowl again. So all this bacteria is living. I do that with my salad bowl. You don't need to wash and be all this clean. And so they have all this like really healthy gut bacteria right. that allows them to break down all the dairy. Wow. Even though they're lactose intolerant, technically. But then what do you do about parasites like schistosomiasis or um, bilizaria? Is it yeah. the same one? Is that the same I thing? It's different. I don't know. Um, anyway, anyway. Yeah. But what, 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 Lots what of got, got us onto this? Oh, the, the children. We were back children to the children. Yes, children will die. From all these things. Okay, so if you made it past... I'd say five. Five. Yeah. You're probably going to live. You're doing pretty good. But maybe younger though, because this is an agricultural society. In an elite society, you probably breastfeed that kid till they're six, especially if it's a boy, to keep that kid alive. You, that's what you send them out to the wet nurse. They get all of that, you know, immuno um, rich breast milk. But the poor peasant kid is probably going to get weaned at a year, year and a half. And you don't really have a choice. Mama is pregnant again. Yeah, she needs- or is given birth maybe and then to work also that she can't maybe just sit there and feed a kid. But I think if you had a kid every year, that's going to help you to run your share cropped farm better. And so weaning is going to be happening with more regularity mm-hmm. than, than it would for the elite. So a lot of our data, but we don't have much data yeah. on breastfeeding at no. all, but well, you know that for children and our lives you know that the rich were sent out for wet nursing, yes, right? And it seems for years at a time in which they were able to build social connections. It does not seem to be the way for the poor that you would breastfeed the kid for that long. Yeah. So weaning must have been like the scariest time ever. Um, okay, so then how was life different for, okay, so we made it past say five yeah. or four or whatever. Yeah. How's life different from a female or male child Mm -hmm. what's kind of their expected upbringing my thinking is you know they're getting involved in adult activities earlier than we would typically let children get involved in adult activities right so much earlier um we have some evidence from uh you know boys being enlisted into the army from the tomb of Hormhep, but they're very young, probably yeah. running errands and messages and stuff, but yeah. then eventually then, you know, moving up in the ranks to become soldiers or something. That's a pre-modern thing. I saw Les Mis. Yeah. I saw Even in the Empire of the War, Sun. The little yeah. drummer boys were like six. Yeah, and they're like right? the first ones onto yeah. the breach. Like send the little drummer boys yeah. to announce to everyone that you're attacking in your Napoleonic yeah. warfare. Make sure you sound the trumpets before you, you go. <laughs> yeah. That like the your kids were had a role mm-hmm. and they were entrusted with greater responsibilities than we. Yeah, I feel like we have extended childhood into like the twenties, even where in ancient Egypt, twenty you were old, you should have the kids and. Well, we we formalized and, education such that it separates mm-hmm. the children from real life and puts them into a different 
milieu. Whereas in ancient Egypt and the ancient world writ large, you apprenticed. So you would send the kid. If if you were a girl with your mother, your apprenticeship started probably from the age of two. And you were there helping with the housekeeping and the cooking and the bread making and all of these things and the clothes making from a very young age. Evidence that the kids were the one doing most of the spinning. Oh, yeah. It was the thing that kind of easy to do. How can you see it? Um, I mean, they're depicted in a lot of cases. Oh, okay. Depicted, it's children doing it. Right. Um, and it's the thing you start with. It's the kind of yeah. easier thing to do. Yeah, it takes a lot of thread um, to make a shirt. And you need a so lot get of thread, going. So it's like everyone can chip it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're a boy who's apprenticing, you know, maybe you apprentice as the the armor, you know, the armor apprentice, and you yeah. learn how to be a blacksmith, or you yeah. learn how to um you know take care of horses or make a yeah you could be a woodworking apprentice all kinds of things which means you're going to send the boy outside of the household dad or uncle or or if the dad is is a craftsman or something in the household they will still go off to get more work Mm -hmm. so the boy will be outside of the house and the the girl will remain inside of the Mm -hmm. the domestic space and we have a lot of physical evidence for trauma or physical labor on child skeletons to show that they were involved in physical labor activities farming abusive to even to such a degree sometimes yeah um which ones are you thinking of so again this is from that dachlo oasis cemetery where the kids have like you know abuse signs of abuse broken bones that aren't healed right and um like vertebrae that are squashed and carrying lots right. of heavy things and and not just a broken bone that's like you, yeah. you got into some hijinks like with a, the boys like and peri fracture oh wow so they're beating you mm-hmm. to do the work and, and i wonder you, like yeah. the work at amarna with some of the yeah trauma. i agree i wonder if there's any children or youths that show evidence of being you know this forced labor forced abuse yeah on bodies that can't physically handle it right I mean, the adults have evidence of of repetitive of stress injury physical labor yeah. yeah so i'm sure kids were involved it would like you can see in the heel bones and austin's told me this you can see in the heel bones of a woman or man if they're squatting a lot mm-hmm. and and doing labor while squatting yeah. um well, there's like an knees if you're yes grinding, yeah and, and you're on stuff. your knees a lot exactly yeah so like not as probably sheltered as children are today well, let me give two examples for the women growing, the girls growing up fast. One is from an exhibition I was a part of uh, back in grad school called Quest for Immortality that was at the National Gallery of Art in DC and went to other museums after that. And in that show was a girdle that was a, that was like the tiniest little thing I've ever seen. And yet it was made of conch shells. And yes, maybe some of the conch shells had been lost, but I think this was found in a context in which this was what, this was the size that it was. Um, I I know it's, I don't know. I'll have to check and we'll, we'll ask Amber to put in the show notes, maybe with the picture and I'll pull out the volume, but it's a tiny little thing. And from scenes from tombs, you know that these girls were meant to be wearing it and only that. Mm-hmm. And they might have their pubic hair showing and just this little girdle and maybe a fancy hairstyle. And there, there is a servant and they're meant to be sexualized. Well, and we see them as girls, You're right. as something that shouldn't be sexualized. Right. But men see starts at 11, 12, 13. Nine sometimes, eight, nine sometimes. And then you're a woman. Yes. So we're viewing them as like, oh, they shouldn't be, you know, with our cultural context and stuff, but. 
but they were seen through a sexual lens of objectification, patriarchal commodification. You know, there's all kinds of big words that one can assign to this. And just that what, you know, I remember looking at it going, holy shit, look at how tiny this little thing is. Mm -hmm. And you get an idea of how young a girl is when she's thrust, um, pun intended, into this, Mm -hmm. into this new world. Someone who's pre- being opened as the Egyptians would call it. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, losing not, her virginity. You, there's a difference between like a youth's body bef- and then right. before you have, when you have a kid, your body totally changes. So what Jordan's referring to is the, um, it's in the West Carp papyrus and it's when Snefru is, he wants to hang out with the lovely young ladies mm-hmm. whose bodies have not been opened yeah. in childbirth. He does not want the old chicks like me, whose bodies have been, <laughs> I mean, I would be a crone beyond repair in the ancient world, but he doesn't want any old things. And of course, these old things are probably 18 years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. Right? I would have been ancient. Yeah, he wants all the 12 and 13 year olds to yeah. row for him. And that's that's sexually attractive yeah. within this patriarchal system. And it's not because of virginity or anything. It's just yeah, pregnancy, childbirth, all this changes your body. Yeah. In very marked ways. Well, it's an interesting point that you make. Is it? Well, is it that the because I would argue that looking at someplace like Rome, and, and this is a facile comparison, but bear with me, that that there is more value to the older experienced woman in her sexuality and her conniving on behalf of her family in an affair or a sexual relationship, she is more valued than the young, nubile, hot young thing who doesn't know shit. She can't really act as, a, as an operator on behalf of her family, the way those women did in ancient Rome. So in a way that society values because of their political buy-in and, and what they were doing on behalf of the family, they value that older, more experienced chick as opposed to Egypt, where the patriarchy is so agricultural and the woman is so commodified mm-hmm. and she has so little political voice, except in the highest echelons, that it doesn't even matter. She's just the hot young thing and then she's not. But I also think for Rome, because I agree with you, but I think it's also because divorce is totally kosher yeah. and they're doing it multiple times yeah. and like totally fine. And whose kid is who also really doesn't matter as much, right? Yeah. You just adopt whoever you want to be your heir. Yeah. No one cares. Yeah. So then yes, someone who has more wisdom um is valued and you know political power, but, I think is more effective in Rome. But it is very interesting that except for the very highest echelons of society in Egypt, the political acumen of a woman is completely unvalued. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's crazy. But um, I feel like you could probably say that about Rome too. Like in most. Like yeah. We're talking about a senatorial families. The women probably didn't have a lot of. It's an inter- we'd have to, we'd have to bring in a classicist again, to tell us a Roman. All these, you don't have evidence for like normal people. <laughs> right. We all, we're just pulling from. Like the, Rome, the data thinking we of have. Like, yeah. Like senatorial classes, the rich mm-hmm. patrician families and right. stuff. So right. it's a lot. Women have a lot more power there oh but the second example and because of who their fathers were and things like this and totally agree brothers the second egyptian example that made me go whoa women are pushed into society quite young is of course coffins because you know i'm the coffin girl and this is what i do but coffins are social documents and coffins help record an instance of humanity in the ancient world ancient elite world but it's still there and there are way more tiny coffins Mm. for females than there are tiny coffins for males. 
which is tiny, not just because, okay, they're short. Like, you know, they're, no, they're children's coffins. These are child coffins. And on the lid of these coffins, which are Ramesid period in almost every instance. So that means 19th dynasty, maybe 20th dynasty coffins. They're like four feet tall, Mm. you know, tiny little things. They're children's coffins. No, but they're the depiction on the cover of it is of a woman with her all her curves shown and the garment that shows all of, you know, shows the vaginal triangle. It shows her breasts and she's fully developed in a sense. And she is playing that role in society of a fully developed female. And I know of three such coffins and I only know of one such coffin for a male that shows him in daily dress of the same time Mm -hmm. period. But but again, it's just, it shows him as a little man, Yeah. but it's, you know, this one was for a two-year-old and it's the one in the Met mm-hmm. that I can um, yeah. give Amber a picture of later. But, you know, the, these are interesting in that you could argue that a female was pushed into the, the deep end of society. Become a woman. Exactly. Faster, earlier. Much earlier than the boy who was allowed to mature, which is a trademark of patriarchal society. I was going to say, that's kind of how it is now. That's the asymmetry. The whole saying, oh, women mature faster, boys take a lot longer. And thus, if you're, you know, 12 and your boyfriend is 17, oh, no problem. That's okay. You know, you're with the older boy and that's why. You're mature. Yeah, that you you have these men who date women who are 40 years younger than them or 20 years younger Mm -hmm. than them and this is normal or they divorce their old wife and go to the young yeah. thing men get all this acceptance made for them oh yeah they, they haven't matured yet fully they're that they asymmetry these... is hardwired into the patriarchal mm-hmm. system and including because in the capitalist power. system um because Older why man versus to younger woman you can control her yes but her value yeah is i mean we're not producing children in the same way right but the we're commodifying women still but her value is old in... men can still be hot. Yeah, old women. I no. think it's slightly changing. It is changing. But it is changing. Typically, you know, don't get talked about in the same way, right? You no. have you have daddy, zaddy. Yeah. You know, silver foxes. You have all these terms for hot old guys. And milf, you're milf until you're like forty, and then it's yeah, kind of like, over. And I and milf still like yes, it means like you're hot, but I still think it has like a somewhat yeah or cougar yeah, but that's also has says somewhat negative connotation yeah. attached to it, it compared to silver fox i yeah, agree silver completely fox or all these things and like daddies are like oh you have a dad bod yeah. which means you're kind of dumpy but it doesn't but matter positive and yeah. it's but like if you're a woman you're kind of dumpy you're fat and awful <laughs> and i and so if we're if we're bringing this back to what we started with at the beginning which is that the aged in ancient egypt had so much value i think it's important to remember that we're talking about the aged men <laughs> men and the women were put through the ringer and ground up through the mass childbirth after year after year after year there were not many old women there were lots of old men or a reasonable amount of old men they were rare they were valued but old women were probably there probably were not many of them and if they were they were probably barren or couldn't have kids for whatever reason what i wonder like you know in the dear medina text the rahit like the wise woman as it gets translated yeah. if it's like if it's you know this very rare term you don't see popping up it is because it's a woman who's older who's 
though I think we have some instances of Rechit's being like 20 or something too. Very young. gives you an idea that when you look at ancient society as a whole, and this would be an interesting Witches. study. So some, yes, somebody go out there and write this <laughs> dissertation, which is like, look at ancient society as a whole and think of those women who get to make it to old age and become mm-hmm. the crone and become the witch. They are often asked by society to remove their sexuality from society. They and are single or, or remove themselves from society. Their virgin, like a virginity is imposed upon them like the nun or the vestal virgin, maybe the God's wife of Amun, maybe not. But like the, this idea of not having a husband and a family and children, that's the one you're the maiden aunt. You get to get old. Whereas the other women of the household are generally going to have already died. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's, it's pretty crazy. So, um, well, and the whole like grandmother hypothesis, and it's like maybe there is a certain purpose to be served that, that the women that the human aunt. female only goes through menopause, like why we have menopause yeah. yeah, and whales and humans only yeah. whales and humans. But the idea that you still have your purpose then postmenopausal is to help your daughter mm-hmm. raise her children or other you know babies in the family. Well, and it means that the risk of childbirth for the human female is so high and that you need help. That you need help to be able to do it that once you hit 40 something there's no point in that woman trying to have babies anymore. She's she need, you need to be young and strong. Too high. Risk is too high. You're all, the, you're the geriatric mother. Yeah. Bring in the menopause so that you can then if you're alive, if you made it this far you get to help out with the, yeah. with the grandkids. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. It's depressing, but yes. <laughs> and that's just, that's just the economy of the human body Yeah, and the yeah. big heads, goddamn big heads. Well, yeah. And that, you know, most animals give birth by themselves. They separate themselves from the group and go have their baby and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I feel like not to say uh, a human female can't give birth by herself but i think in most cases having someone there who's done it and knows what they're doing no you do need assistance some help you need assistance you cannot do this alone you need those other women yeah midwives and such yeah yes you do with their important knowledge of something goes wrong what you do and all that kind of stuff turn the baby over it's breach midwives associated with witches associated with these women who've been removed from society in some way so very interesting Here's another sexy topic. So um, turning to interactions between family members, right? So was intermarriage or close marriage acceptable? We talked about most being first cousins. Right. So you're asking about brother, sister marriage. So technically in our world, first cousins. Fine. Oh, you mean in this world today in the United States? No, illegal. It is illegal. You can't do it. Yes. Not cool. Yeah. Do they still make you get like a DNA test to make sure you're not related? Wasn't that, didn't that used to be a thing? Huh. So yeah, in certain states, they ask you to either testify you to get the or, blood or test. prove that you're not genetically related. Right, not brother, sister. Yeah. Or or first cousins or something. Right. Cause, and like, there's all these stories of where people get tested and then they actually are first cousins and then they're like, oh shit. Or half like, brother, sister. Yeah, yeah. we can't get, yeah. you know, legally yeah. can't get married or something. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So what's considered incest? So this one changes with time, as you know. The, and, and it also, the data for this is tough. But from what we've got for Pharaonic Egypt, there is not a whole lot of evidence for brother-sister marriage. There's also not a whole lot of evidence for private ownership of property. But once you get a Greek colonial occupation, mm-hmm. Nocratus coming up as a city, and you get all of these new people coming in, you get more competition, you get more private ownership of property, brother-sister marriage takes off with a fervor. Yeah. 
among Egyptians and amongst people who might consider themselves Greek Egyptians. Yeah. I did so, find, yeah. I did find a new book. So I haven't read it. I saw it was published through the Archeo Press um, by Joanne Marie Robinson. She's a lecturer at Manchester. Okay. Um, but it's entitled Book Blood is Thicker Than Water, mm-hmm. Non-Royal Consanguinity. Consanguinity. Yes, that word. I don't like yeah. it. Incest. <laughs> Non-royal incest. Um, and so I could only read the blurb of it because yeah. I didn't get the book. But that she claims to have evidence to show. Oh, there's so much evidence. That there's some families, so non-royal. But in but what time period is she talking about? I don't know. It, I think is, it's yeah. later. It's going to be later. Families late period and beyond. Incest as a preferred economic strategy. But right. again, if we're taking our modern definition of incest being first cousins, then yeah, it's everywhere. Yes, that's true. So I think it depends on that definition of incest. But there were actually laws that that encouraged people to marry brother and sister continuously because of taxes and and. Mm-hmm. Um, laws of passing down property that became so uh, debilitated to the family by having to give taxes to the state that they maintained these brother-sister relationships for generations in a way that were not healthy. Like the DuPonts. Real? Coast. So the DuPonts, like the DuPont chemical. Yeah. So they started having, they started marrying like first cousins to keep the money in the family. Yeah. And they started having all these genetic Down syndrome became like super common in their family. And they started having all these genetic oh, issues because wow. they were marrying like first multiple cousins. generations of first mm-hmm. cousins. And you have to know villages probably talked about these things. You probably had the old people saying you can only do that a couple of times. Make sure you marry somebody young and new. Um, yeah. Have some new blood. Yeah. Mix it up. Yeah. Which but, makes sense for like all these ideas in the past of multiple areas coming together to a ritual place like go go back Lee Tepe or something mm-hmm. like the whole countryside coming and you'd probably make your like marriage coordinations there yeah you know someone from a neighboring village that you're not you know and you know they're trustworthy and the family's good and stuff but they're not directly related to you and- right but you know you can follow you can track this for royal yeah uh consanguineous um, relationships and you can see when the family takes precedence over the institution mm-hmm. in that in the 18th dynasty you have a whole shit ton of brother sister marriages and the 18th dynasty arguably starts with two generations of full brother sister marriage it's amazing yes. that amenhotep the first was born at all let alone yeah. lived as long as he did but it was useful for them to keep all of that wealth and influence in the family. They were starting a whole new dynasty. I mean, they didn't know they were, but like, yeah, there was a lot of tumult around them. And and they kept that going. But then by the end, and by the end of it, you know, Akhenaten, he's there arguably having children with his own daughters. Mm -hmm. That's interesting in and of itself. But when you move to the 19th, it goes away. They're not interested in it anymore because they don't need to keep all of their wealth in the family. Yes, you have Ramses II marrying his own daughters, but you don't have the the same kind of a, a political demand, yeah. political demand to keep all of that wealth in the mm-hmm. and and political influence in the family. So yeah. that's it, yeah. it's interesting. But I think it all comes down to like what your definition you're using. If you're yeah. using a modern definition of incest. Yeah, everyone was practicing incest then in the pre-modern yeah, but world. The difference between first cousin incest and, and brother, brother sister, sister incest. Uncle niece uh, yeah. It, it, uncle niece is even less bad than yeah. brother. I mean, brother, sister, you get some serious repercussions and fast uh, and fast. Uh, yeah. Like the mountain lion. Yeah. The, yeah mm-hmm. In, in the, California. Yeah. They're all like 
derpy and looking. yeah, yeah they because they're all genetic short tails yeah, and crooked tails sad. and like weird faces and yeah this is yeah. California mountain lions. So there's you... like three of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they have to all breed with each other. And eating rat poison. Yeah. From it's so stupid sad. People. Stupid people that put rat poison. In. Yeah. It's awful. Okay. So yeah, incest. <laughs> incest is a thing. Yeah. I guess. I think it's, it's a sexy topic. It Incest is a patriarchal thing yeah. dr- driven by economic realities. In the same way that marriage is a patriarchal thing mm-hmm. driven by economic realities. And if people don't have to do it, they'll opt out because you know genetically that if i if we did the the, attracted to no and if you do the sexy t-shirt contest smell the smell contest where you set a woman generally one who's ovulating Mm -hmm. up and you and you have her smell the sweat of people with different levels of symmetry mm-hmm. and, and include maybe the sweat of her father or the sweat of her brother the sweat of her father and brother will be so disgusting to her olfactory senses mm-hmm. whatever however you define pheromones she will reject those and the ovulating woman will be able to with precision line up the more symmetrical to the less symmetrical mm-hmm. by smelling the sweat and so that means that the first cousin is not going to smell yeah, very symmetrical to her for what however that works she's not going to find him sexy no. No. And I'm sure like growing up with them versus not has some influence, right? Because even like Queen Victoria and Albert were technically first cousins, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I thought they were second. Second cousins. I have to look, we have to look that up. But like cousins. Yeah. Close cousins. And but they didn't grow up together. So and it was like they had to connect, write their letters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So but versus like, I don't know, me growing up with my brother, like it's kind of like the novel Emma marrying the jane austen novel Mm -hmm. emma where they grow up where he's she's like a little sister and then they fall in love no relation no connection but it has to shift from being a a little brother or older brother little sister relationship into into a different one it's just and i think there's a 20-year difference i mean that book is really a good study in elite patriarchal systems Mm -hmm. and how these women are commodified and and it really is it's wonderful it's wonderful okay so I want to talk, so we talked about intergenerational stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole spur of this episode was thinking about boomers and millennials yeah. critiquing each other yeah. and having this back and forth. Um, and I was thinking, is there any evidence we have of this popping up in ancient Egypt? And my, the only thing that could come to me, yeah, we'll see if you can think of anything else. Let me rack in my brain. But the only thing that came to me was the will of Naunacht. Because she's and, got the annoying children and that she, she cuts them. out. Yeah. So obviously there was some, but, you know, maybe not so much intergenerational, but just family drama um, going on where she, you know, leaves some of the children, three of the children out of her will, but the other children get to stay in because they're doing whatever she deems appropriate. I mean, I would look to instructional texts where they say that the ears of the young boy are on his back, meaning you must beat him to get him to study. And that that's what they did to me. And that's what we're going to do to you. And And the young always do these things and the old have to impose their ways upon them. Yeah. And we have a lot of the whole, you know, you know, how you should act to your superior. Right. And I think you could extend this to your father, to your grandfather, your uncle, to your boss, whatever, that these, how you should regard yourself in your, to your superior um you you could respect in all this you could look at the satire of the trades which is encouraging the boy to sit at his studies and be good and and to control his 
nature. Like they're like, don't join the army and what, you know, don't run off, study hard and be mm-hmm. a scribe. Now it's not intergenerational, but it is the older generation writing to the younger generation, trying to keep them things. in line. Yeah. Um, like the older professor telling the younger student, no, this is how I did it. Now you have to do it this way. And it's kind of a little hazing ritual mm-hmm. involved and, and how you're meant to be. Yep. So you have, but that's just older male and younger male. And Mental so it's father to son, easy. grandfather to grandson, but you don't, you don't see that with women. You don't see also a lot of people shirking that. No. Right? You don't see someone being like, ah, oh, like I'm going to go be an artist. And Mm-mm. like, that wouldn't have been recorded. And you do in the instructions, you might say that, oh, you were a wastrel in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't prepare your place in the graveyard. You didn't save your, your money to make the coffin for your family. So there must've been those elites who squandered their money. Like caring for their family. Yes. Parents too. Yes. The right, the, right? the law of inheritance is that whoever buries their parents gets the inheritance. And if you're not caring for your parents, it it's connected to not burying them properly. So you don't get the stuff. So it, it is baked into the system that you must be a domesticated. You can't uh, shirk your duty. You have to child. take care of them. Yeah. 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 But that, and so there's, you could, you could say that in the ancient world as it is now that there's always generational conflict. What's harder to track is different generations. Mm-hmm. And you know, they must've existed. There must've been the generation, like say you're in Ramses II's early years and there's the old people that lived through Akhenaten's years mm-hmm. and they would have, maybe they had a name, you know, or the old ones who remembered the dark yeah. heretics times yeah. or something, but we don't have any evidence of, of that. And or they may have acted like the norms had changed or right. something, yeah. Or like when Thebes is going through the civil war at the end of the 19th dynasty, mm-hmm. you know, those people who remember that as they're moving into the 20th dynasty, you know, what's that memory and how does that trauma then associate yeah. itself with particular ages of people and lineages, and generations? Yeah. yeah. Which I think is what we touch on most with generations, like how you think about something and how- right. What's appropriate? Yeah. What's what's the habitus that one mm-hmm. should use? What's the correct way of and maybe of being slower back then? Of change, course, right. So in the same maybe way, not from grandparents to grandchildren or parents to children, it being drastically different. But you know, maybe yeah, maybe grandparents to grandchildren. Like there's a bunch of Egyptologists who like to say I'm making an analogy who like to say that Egypt was not market based because the prices were so consistent. Mm-hmm. But you could argue that prices for sandals or shirts or livestock were so consistent because the prices for the commodities and the crafting of those commodities was so consistent over time because there wasn't any growth in the market. The demand stayed the same quickly. And and the fashion is not changing. It's not becoming one style or another. It's, it's more regularized. And so you could argue that the value, if the prices stay the same, the value capitalistic no you don't have like oh this fashion house versus this one and who's popular and you can raise the prices and it's possible that after a time period of great strife when all the young men have been killed Mm -hmm. then you have a generation that is that is more valuable because there are fewer of them but Egypt wasn't a place that regularly was pulled into great strife this isn't West Asia or Mm -hmm. 
or Rome, where everyone's fighting these civil wars against each other, you you don't have the same. But maybe you know when the Assyrians came in and sacked Thebes, maybe a whole ton of people died. Yeah, and so you have. I, I, you know where I think these kinds of things would be more remembered, not necessarily in Egypt, but in places that Egypt was conquering. Mm-hmm. So certain Levantine places, certain yeah. Nubian places yeah. that when the Egyptians marched down to the fourth cataract and like burned shit down and took the crown prince and mm-hmm. created real havoc. I imagine there was a generational understanding of who had lived through that. Yep. And then what the generations the that came from have, after yeah, that were. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But how were we going to yeah, find that in the almost, documents? I don't it's know. It's almost like trauma is the yeah, it is the marker of <laughs> sadly, it is. and the walking trauma up the hill or, both ways or trauma or I think um, plenty. It's either like absence or plenty. The in between, if it's just stasis, it's so, gonna you know as anything. I as I talk about in my book, the Good Kings, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um, <laughs> that you go through these parabola moments yeah. of as you say, lack and then plenty. And you can track those generations on the up and up who are like, we had to walk through the hill, you know, up the, in the snow both ways and da, da, da. And I had to fight for my king and you were just a layabout who's like covered in gold and you didn't do anything to deserve it. And I'm sure those conversations happened between the generation of Amenhotep the first yeah. and the generation of Amenhotep the third yeah. or Thomas the fourth, right? And you could you could see it but then how are you going to track like, oh, that? You're so spoiled. You don't have to work for anything. Everything's like a plenty. I think that's, I really do think this could be a dissertation. It could be, you'd have to really pull data. Like tomb lingerie. Maybe how they talk about yeah. goings on and yeah. And you could probably, it would be harder to track on the downward slope yeah, because you don't have as have many tombs, right? Yeah. But people aren't, you know, the, the, the Egyptians did not like to write such competitive realities down or such criticism down, mm-hmm. but sometimes they did. Sometimes they did. So it's, it, it's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I have one last question. Yeah. Which is tangentially related, okay. but I had to ask it when Amber <laughs> and I were talking about it, we have to touch, we were like, we have to touch on this because it's related in some way. But right, so Americans have an obsession with genealogy and DNA studies. Uh-huh. We, we both talk about it all the time. Yeah, we do. We want to know about it, right? I already mentioned my Italian yeah. Irish background. But like yeah. when you go to Europe, for example, mm-hmm. no one cares. No, because they all come from They don't want to hear that, oh, you're one fifth Italian or something. Mm-hmm. They're like, great, like don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're confused <laughs> why we care. I have my own assumption of or idea of why we care about it um but what do you think and then just hypothetically um do we see obviously for the ancient egyptians probably wouldn't have cared about their genetics and stuff like this like we do we want to know like oh 25 percent irish and stuff and they're all egyptians so there's probably less you know depending if you're in the delta or the south you're going to have more maybe near eastern levantine or nubians um admixture um but we still see an interest in ancestors and genealogies especially Mm -hmm. later uh third intermediate period Mm -hmm. so when you on those type of i i like this question it's interesting i mean Mm -hmm. when you get immigration however you define that into egypt you get people remembering their heritage. So you could talk about the 400 year stela mm-hmm. of the 
of the 19th dynasty royal family. Whenever it was written down, it is fragmentary. It's a difficult thing. But they're talking about their past as soldiers for hire in a high elite context, context mercenary soldiers, really worth their value as mm-hmm. fighters with, with acumen and strategy and, and armor or whatever they, all that they had. So they, and you could say, oh, they're calling back to, and they're listing generations in there, which is really weird. Yeah. It's not an Egyptian thing to do. It's a Levantine thing to do. And the fact that they're from the Eastern Delta and their name is Seth, which is connected to Baal or a yeah. storm god kind of thing, links it up even more clearly that there is a That's shout a out yeah. to a to a kinship group that has a base of popular support that they want to connect with. And coming from this military community of practice, to mm-hmm. use a hot word in the academic sphere right now, it, it is of value to them to say that they as recent immigrants in terms of generations, mm-hmm. second, third, fourth generation, right? What's Ramses the second? Maybe a fourth generation immigrant into Egypt? Maybe, maybe yeah. not. But there's value for them to mark this. And then there's, you see the same thing with somebody like Harry Hor, yeah. uh, who was called, he calls himself a chief of Ma. And that's a Libyan term. And it's, he starts to call himself the this. love the, the genealogies. And the Libyans love their genealogies. And Harry Hor is listing all of his children in the Kansu temple context. And how, how does this work? How many wives did he have? It's not really clear. But, you know, he's marking a Libyan ancestral past yeah. proudly. Mm-hmm. And maybe his father didn't because he couldn't the same way my mother couldn't learn Italian, but then because, you know, access powers and world war two, and we don't talk about that. And my, my grandmother, her name was Elena. And then she started to call herself Eleanor, Eleanor. Right. Um, But then with the third generation, you like reclaim it and it's cool Mm -hmm. again. So I think you can see these things in Egypt. And then, you know, we could ask Danny Candelora about what she thinks about Hyksos. However, Mm -hmm. we define them Levantine people who come in and then, you know, first generation, they are nothing but that. And yep. then second generation, they try to blend. And the third, they're like yeah. proudly Just, reclaiming it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get these hybrid realities. Um, so I think you can make some comparisons between those, yeah. between what we do in the United States when... But you think it's all connected ultimately to immigration? I think it's and, connected to hybrid identities yeah. that can be created through some method of immigration. I think it's more complicated and darker when it's connected to a live captive reality mm-hmm. or in the American sense of chattel slavery yeah. reality, when you enslave people and you remove them from their language, from their families, from their, their cultural systems, and you impose other systems upon them and you take away the ability to track these things, you know, a live captive taken from the Levant on some sort yeah. of a mission by Chitlis the third, you know, they can talk about it, but really they're brought, you know, in a way that is quite violent, ripped from their past, mm-hmm. not willingly. It's a much different story. And it's a different story for the Black American who can only tell their story through what, what they got through their oral history. Yep. And it can only go back so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it- Awful slave records where they're listed as like property. Exactly. And, yeah. So I think the, the stories are, I'm not saying there's no hybrid identity, if you've been brought to a place against your will, but I think it's a darker, more complicated story than, oh, I used to feel bad about who I was. And then two generations later, it's awesome again. 
um, I think it's always going to be harder to deal. And, and then we can talk about indigenous impositions, mm-hmm. right? For the Nubians where, you know, you're, you're trying to track some of these things, but the indigeneity, those systems are being suppressed quite brutally, sometimes more so, sometimes yeah. less so. Sometimes you get a fluorescence of what was, and sometimes it's pushed down again. Oh, I mean, we could talk about American with the boarding schools yes. forced upon the indigenous peoples here, right? right? They're trying right. to erase right. their culture. And you could argue the same for lower Nubia, yeah. right? And then in upper Nubia, you make these raids and you go in and you you try to decapitate the people at the top and you try to Egyptianize the people at the mm-hmm. top and impose it. And the but 25th so I, dynasty is a result of that very that very system. So I, to me, right, as Americans, we're always usually really fascinated because when our ancestors came over, who were typically poor, yeah, they all that history was lost, yeah, right. It wasn't because they wanted to Americanize, they wanted to fit in and didn't want to seem different or anything like that. So, much like maybe the Nubian moving to Egypt or the Levantine person moving to Egypt, you want to fit in, and so you lose those other parts, but then later generations are curious, right? You want to know. And I think it it depends on the base that you come in with. There are a shit ton of Irish Americans in the United States, yeah, as well as Italian Americans, and and they collect in certain places like mm-hmm. Chicago yeah. or <laughs> or New York, right? And then once you get that community, then in that collective, you create a new identity. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, totally you were from some village in Italy, and you never would have met this other Italian who's from Sicily. Different worlds, but yeah. in Chicago. The Italians are all put together into these ghetto communities at the beginning. And, and then you're asking, where are you from? I am from here. You are from there. And our languages are, we have different dialects, but we can connect yep. in this Italian way. And, and so you. Yeah. <laughs> like a word that means nothing in Italian. Cap- capacola, because but it's gabagol. Gabagol. You know, or, yeah. or prosciutto instead of prosciutto. Yeah. And all these yeah. little slang. Ricotta becomes ricotta. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, you make this new. And it's thing. a Chicago Italian dialect or a New York Italian yeah. dialect versus um, what it was before. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's it's super complicated. It all has to do with power. It all has to do with whether you find power in trying to suppress any sort of past, and whether you find power in resuscitating that past in the new setting in which you find yourself. How you can reclaim power. If that, if that past has been wrested from you by force, how you can create a mythology or a story that helps to give you that family lineage because that within that family lineage, there is great strength. Mm-hmm. And, and so people are trying to, yeah. to manufacture it even if they don't have any. Yeah, as much as like, you know, the boomer millennial back and forth is maybe annoying, but I think it's like ultimately good because that means there's conversations happening yeah. and- people are being pushed maybe out of their comfort zones. Well, the changes we're going through right now. Oh my God. I mean, they're beyond, um, I mean, I, in my opinion, we're at like bronze age collapse level changes, which is, I think all the millennials feel that. Yeah. And I, in a way feel like boomers feel like guilty. They should. Because (laughs) not just that it's like their fault or something, but that they, didn't see it left us with this world yeah they didn't that's not very good they invented the plastic um, and that, <laughs> it is now you know, drowning you everything want your kid to have a better life than you yeah right so and it's not true 
Yeah. And it's a reckoning that they have to kind of come to terms with. Yeah. So, and it, it's like, it's sad, but it just it is what it is. And you wonder then in, in Egypt, you know, what did the, gen- did a generation feel a responsibility yeah. for having brought on the traumas that one is dealing with? I don't think for the Bronze Age collapse, you could really argue it because I think, you know, this mass migration. When you always blame the outsiders. You'll always blame the outsiders yeah. for that. You know, they see people hordes and you'll name the different tribes and say the horrible things they were doing. And you, and you might have drought and famine and low Niles and you can't blame anyone but the gods for that. But when you have something like Akhenaten's excesses, mm-hmm. for instance, and then other excesses, you know, Khufu is not well-remembered. Yep. Right. Um, so Monster the Third is remembered as kind of a brutal sort of dictator dude. If you have if you are of the generation that facilitated those excesses, I imagine you would have been treated in a little bit like an okay boomer kind of way yeah. in, in an ancient Egyptian world. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is a fun episode. Yeah, I loved it. It was, really it was fun. super fun. And and I, I love that we're talking about things that again. It's hard to write about them academically. Yeah. It's hard to find evidence. And we're just kind of, this is, this is me and Jordan talking about our feel mm-hmm. of what the ancient world would have been like for a family. Um, it, it's hard to build this up systematically yeah. into something that, it, that you can really touch. And as soon as you grab it, it's, it slips away yeah. Yeah. <laughs> already. It's very ambiguous. It is, it is. But- and yet it's, it's, uh, it's what we live in. And so it's something that I think we can talk about based on our own human mm-hmm. uh, upbringing, our own human past and histories, yeah. and and thus use those to help under, understand this ancient world a little bit better. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't bring past and, and, and present together. How always, else are we supposed to do it? connections to be made. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're human beings living in our own systems. We must use those well, to try and understand to the me, ancient ones. All history is constructed and mm-hmm. made up in yep. a sense so yep. why not make comparisons exactly. if, as long as they're fruitful and you're getting something out of them and it's making you think critically about a situation and know that you're doing it and, and you if know, you're open about you're it doing it then that, you know yeah there's no tr- one truth that ever to be found so yeah you know you just have to go in there with the purpose yeah and what you're looking for agree that was super fun good Thanks, Gordo. Of course. (laughs) All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. What are we talking about next week? I don't know. Oh, I love it. We don't know. We'll figure it out. I usually start thinking the week before, like to keep it okay, keep it open. That's awesome. See if there's something happening, like this. I was on Twitter and just was like, "Huh, that'd be interesting." That's that's cool. Keep it good. I like it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, before she even prompts me, I'll say this is Afterlives with me. Kara Cooney and, and Gordo. And me, Jordan. Because <laughs> I don't have a last name. You do. It's, it's just, just hard, hard to spell. So we'll C-Z-Y. Just... Yeah, yeah see, we can talk more about the patriarchy inheriting your father's weird yeah. last name. Yeah, instead of Galzinska, which is what you should have had. I don't know. Well, if I just kept my mom's last name, I'd be Eisenhart. I'd have oh. a nice German name. Eisenhart. Oh, a heart of iron. Yeah. That's awesome. Strong. Wow. Strong name. Yeah. But I'm going to go with just Jordan. Patrilineal succession. We can talk about that another time. Yeah. So I have actually been seeing more articles about like why we take last names. Yeah. The family and the yeah. man's son and all this stuff. Does so the kid get to pick? How does it yeah. work? Or we could just be like Jordan of the West Side. <laughs> <laughs> of our place. I love it. But Okay. Until next time. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Yeah. 
It's oh, Afterlives with Kara Kamui. Look at you. That wasn't even what I was saying. I was saying, <laughs> it, is it like it's scary out there? Maybe another world war coming. So yeah, because because of Russia. Because Russia. Goddamn Russia. Well, I know there, lady. We did. We're the Bronze Age collapse. You know what are you gonna do? We all feel it. Might as well talk about it. But yeah, it's yeah. Let's see, let's see what you but stay safe. Yeah. And we'll talk next week. As you say, stay frosty. Stay frosty. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack After Lives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. See you next time on Afterlives with Kara Cooney.